when we look at the native speakerism or even what non-native English-speaking teachers face, it's a preferred way to look at language through a critical lens because when we just use these labels like ESL, EFL, you know, who are we really trying to describe? Like, in the eyes of who, right? And I think when we think of power, when we name or label these folks, are we giving them power or are we taking power away from them? Hi, listeners. Hi. That was Alex Tang, one of our guests on today's episode. As you can tell from the clip, today's theme is embedded in ideas of language and power and the native speaker fallacy. The idea that the ideal teacher of English is a native speaker. Alex and his collaborator, Korean Sasiyu, came on to tell us more about the issues surrounding these labels and the value we place on native English-speaking teachers versus non-native teachers. Just a light little topic for our first episode after our summer break. (laughs) Yeah, no, we're not taking it easy, are we? (laughs) Nope. Time to get back to it. Mm -hmm. So don your social justice caps. Kick into your critical lens. And prepare to reflect with us. Hello, and welcome to the Teacher Think Aloud podcast, a podcast for reflective practice for teachers of English around the world. I'm your co-host, Shay. And I'm Anna. And here is today's dynamic duo, Alex and Kareen. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Alexander Tang. Feel free to please call me Alex. So Alex Tang, Tang like the orange juice. I use he, him pronouns. I am currently a PhD student in the Department of East Asian Languages and Literatures at the University of Hawaii. Hi, I'm Karine Iris Wissinger. You can just call me Karine. I go by the pronouns she and her. So currently I'm working as a practical research teacher at a senior high school here in Manila, Philippines. But I also work as a part-time ESL teacher at Edinburgh Colleges. So Alex and I have been working since in master's. Mm-hmm. And oh, I've nice. worked on this homework. And he was like, oh, you need to publish this one. And from there on, that's when we started working together. Oh, that's right. cool. What a cool coming together story. Yeah, I didn't realize that that was how you had met. So, you know, once Alex encouraged you to publish, how did that collaboration between you flourish how did this work continue for you as kareen said we met when we were both doing our mat school degrees at seattle university in 2018 we took a whole bunch of classes together well basically we were like a small cohort so whoever got into this program at seattle university I would say we were family, Mm. and I think it was when we took a sociolinguistics course together, right, Kareen? With Bill Harshberger. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Kareen wrote a paper about non-native English-speaking teachers and native English-speaking teachers and the accents and how in the Philippines, the Western accent or this so-called Western accent is more valued in outer circle countries. So I told her, I'm like, you know, I really want to work with you on this research. So we have this research project called Examining ESL slash EFL Teachers' Attitudes and Perspectives Towards World Englishes. And um, Kareen, do you want to go ahead and tell them how we started our collaboration? So 
I think it was during the pandemic when I went back here to the Philippines and I have nothing to do. <laughs> and then Alex was also interested in writing an article. And then I was like, hey, Alex, I think this is the right time for us to start working on this one. And he was like, yeah, we should do this. And then that's how it started. So for that paper, we're still working on it. I think we're just writing the final manuscript, but we've already gathered the data about it. Wow. Wonderful. It's so cool to hear about good things that came out of the pandemic, yeah. right? The spare time that many of us found ourselves with to, to make mm -hmm. something as beautiful as a collaborative paper come out of that. It's, or a podcast. Really wonderful. <laughs> or a podcast, right? <laughs> yes, yes. Okay. Yeah, Fun wonderful. fact, listeners, in case you didn't know, the Teacher Think Aloud podcast was also born of pandemic era creativity. Mm -hmm. It was but also a long-standing relationship with each other as friends and colleagues, just like Alex and Corrine. And you can really see how supportive and playful Alex and Corrine's friendship and collaboration is through our icebreaker question. So we would love for you to choose one adjective that you would use to describe each other. Oh. <laughs> Juicy, right? Tough one. <laughs> oh no, we have to play with this too, I think, later. I'll go ahead. All right. Whenever I see Alex, I just can't help but think of the word fabulous. <laughs> Did you just say fabulous? Yeah, because you're always like going beyond, still with the flair and with the grace. And I always keep on remembering false drag race whenever I see you because you're always talking to me about it. So that's the word yeah. that I would use to describe you. I'm a huge drag race fan. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Good to know. That's a good one. Um, Kareen, I would say you're a very compassionate person. And the reason why I choose the word compassionate is because when we were in Seattle together, you know, you always had a kind heart mm -hmm. and you were always open to talking about more, even though class had already finished. Mm -hmm. And you're just like, mm -hmm. are willing to continue the conversation. So that's how I would describe you. You're a very compassionate person and you're very hardworking. Sorry, I cheated. I, I chose two <laughs> words, but you're a very hardworking person too. Those are such Aww. great qualities for collaborators. I'm like a little emotional after that. I so sweet. They have <laughs> such an admiration for each other and mm. I love that they have fun with it, you know? Mm. What's the collaboration without a little fun? <laughs> <laughs> In this short introduction, Alex and Kareen already touched upon some key words for our topic today. So the first thing we wanted to clarify with them were the definitions. Mm. So think of this as a little scaffolding, listeners. Some of you might be very familiar with these concepts, but others might be hearing this for the first time. Let's start with world Englishes. So when we talk of world Englishes, we're talking about the different forms and varieties of English. And for me, um, that term is very problematic in a sense because you're creating this kind of like barrier or dichotomy between the standard English, if there is mm -hmm. really a standard English, and the other varieties of English. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, so the term world Englishes is just putting Englishes that are not quote-unquote standard into this box, this receptacle, where they're all mm -hmm. kind of the same, you know, they're in this bin together, that's not really celebrating their unique, wonderful qualities. It's just saying, well, these are other mm -hmm. Englishes. They're different from mm -hmm. the English you, that's taught in school, right? right? We want to be taught in school, mm -hmm. and that's, you mm -hmm. know, that's problematic. So with world Englishes, I think you're kind of like highlighting the 
standard English, the one that is spoken by the inner circles, making the other varieties inferior or substandard. So mm. I don't really like that term. <laughs> well, it's like mm -hmm. an ethnocentric approach to understanding different mm -hmm. ways of existing in a language, right? What I've noticed in the TESOL field is that there's a shift in using the term world Englishes to global Englishes. And I believe this is so because if you read uh, Suhanti Mata's book, and Shay and Anna, I know both of you have because you've done a podcast episode on this. Alex is referring to episode 18, where we reviewed Dr. Suhanti Mata's book, Race, Empire, and English Language Teaching. She equates the word world to like when you go to a grocery store and you go to a world food section. Why do you need to name it a world food section? Because those foods are normal food to people from different parts of the world, right? So I, you know, when you think about it that way, it's a racialized term because when you see someone, for example, like you go to Europe, you see someone speak English, they're like, oh, they're speaking English, right? Mm. Versus if you go to India and you see someone speaking English, you'll be like, oh, they're speaking Indian English. Mm -hmm. So what was the point of that? You know, so I haven't really read much of what the alternative term global English is, is for, but I, I believe it's due to globalization and the increased usage of English as a lingua franca. Mm -hmm. Interesting. You know, so many of us in the field of TESOL refer to the term world Englishes, and we know that it's sometimes considered a problematic term, but it's hard to pinpoint why that is and commit to using alternative terms. Definitely. And the point that Alex and Karine are getting at here is the racial connotation of the term world Englishes. Mm -hmm. So I like this shift to global Englishes as a way to indicate varieties of English due to globalization. And you may have heard Karine refer to another key term just now, inner circle countries. She's referring to the three circle model of world Englishes, first developed by Braj Katru which groups varieties of English into three concentric circles, inner, outer, and expanding circle countries. Inner circle countries include the US, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, South Africa, the UK, Ireland. There are some complicated histories here of language and power and colonization, but these generally are countries where English is the official language, where the norms for English have been exported from. These are generally the varieties of English that I mentioned learners ask to be taught in school. Right. And historically, these countries hold a lot of power and mm. the dominant culture in these countries tends to be dictated by the white population living within their borders. Mm. Whereas outer circle countries are those where English is an official language, but it doesn't tend to be the native language of the majority. Mm -hmm. These include countries like India, Nigeria, Singapore, Bangladesh, the Philippines. And most importantly, the official status of English in these countries is usually due to their colonial history. Mm -hmm. And then we have expanding circle countries like Russia, China, Brazil, so many more. Mm -hmm. English isn't an official language here. But these countries recognize the importance of English as a global language and generally try to follow the norms of inner circle countries. 
And so all of this discussion of world Englishes and the three circle model ties into our conversation with Kareen and Alex about non-native English speaking teachers and native English speaking teachers. Um, non-native English speakers are um, teachers who come from countries where English is not the primary language. So for example, we're talking about outer circles and expanding circles. So like Philippines, Singapore, um, Malaysia, Thailand, um, China. But when we talk about native English speakers, these are primarily from the Americas, from the Europe. So I think there's kind of like a blurry line for some people because even though they are not coming from an English speaking country, but because they are Caucasian, they are European, they still consider them as native English speakers. Mm. So you want to add on to that, Alex? Yeah, so I think there is a concept of who the native English speaking teacher is. And I always bring myself back to how in Hong Kong, the Education Bureau actually has a scheme. So they use the British term scheme for um, program. Mm -hmm. They want native English speaking teachers to go to Hong Kong to mm -hmm. teach English because they value the native speakerism of English. I think it really devalues those who are raised in Hong Kong, even though English is an official language, you know, because of colonialism with the, the British. Those who are raised in Hong Kong, when they speak English, they have to always prove themselves. And I think that's part of the non-native English speaking teacher struggle. For sure. Mm -hmm. You know, within the field of English language teaching, we're shifting to this. Well, we have shifted into mm -hmm. the use of multilingual learners because we're trying to sort of avoid this native speaker standard, this native speakerism. So are there some alternatives that we should be using? I was thinking of bilingual English speaking teachers or the multilingual, multicultural. I think that's much preferred mm -hmm. than the non-native English speakers. I'm not sure if Alex heard of other terms. Mm. Yeah, so I think multilingual English speaking teachers is acceptable. What's not acceptable is labeling non-native English speaking mm -hmm. teachers as second language English speakers and teachers. Mm -hmm. Because I've noticed in the research literature, a lot of the second language is being shifted to multilingual now because we want to see this from an asset-based approach mm -hmm. and value the linguistic repertoires that we have within ourselves. And we're not limited to only one language, right? Mm -hmm. So I think it's, as Kareen said, the bi-slash-multilingual lens in describing these teachers is more of a suitable terminology as we... You know, I read this article yesterday and it's like, rather than a diverse world, we're in a super diverse mm -hmm. world. So we should celebrate super mm -hmm. diversity. Yeah. And the unique strengths that a multilingual English speaking teacher or a multilingual teacher celebrating the unique strengths that they bring to mm -hmm. the classroom and the super diverse perspectives that really bring a lot of value. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a lot yeah. of power in the language that we choose to describe others, right? And so, you know, for years we've been talking about needing to approach our student body appreciating what they have to offer and the value was sort of driven by this asset-based perspective in our teaching, right? Mm -hmm. But we need to award our teachers and our colleagues mm -hmm. that same respect. Right. So much power. Yeah. And I really like the term asset based you and Alex used there by using the term native speaker or target language for that matter. 
We're creating a comparison to an impossible standard rather than celebrating multilingual learners and teachers' assets, their incredible talents, and the unique advantages they bring to the table. Corinne and Alex had a lot to say about that. They have so much to add in the classroom.、Mm-hmm. I love having a. Here's me using these labels that we're trying to get away from, right? Yeah. I love having a non-native speaking teacher of a foreign language. I'm trying to learn because they've gone through the same struggle.、Mm-hmm. They、mm-hmm. understand how to learn this language when they're teaching. They know within their teaching pedagogies what works and what doesn't work, right? I think in terms of perceptions, how they exist in the English language teaching world. They're not treated as well as native English-speaking teachers from the inner circle,、mm-hmm. and these perceptions might differ depending on the context. Karine, go ahead. Um, so for that one, I agree with Alex. You know, um, being a non-native English speaker, we have to constantly prove ourselves that we are qualified, that we know the language, and that. The language we're using, the English that we're using, is also accepted. It's also correct. I attended this research conference just recently, and I love how one of the professors, one of our speakers, Dr. Dita of DLSU, Dallas University, talked about、um, it's not actually wrong if a lot of the speakers of that variety of English is using. It's just what we call an innovation or a variety, a feature of that language, but. For other speakers, I think they would view it as erroneous、mm. or deviating from the standard. So, with that, a lot of people are still not recognizing that there are other varieties of English, and that's the biggest challenge for us non-native、mm-hmm. speakers of English that we have to prove ourselves, especially when it comes、mm-hmm. to accents and pronunciation. It's still a very big challenge to prove ourselves because we don't have the American accent, we don't have the European accent. At best, we have I think what they call a neutral accent, and if learners who want to learn、mm-hmm. English. English, hear the accent that we have, they'll judge us at being、mm-hmm. not the native speaker because we don't have that accent. But I also like to capitalize on what Alex said that non-native English speakers bring a lot on the table when they teach English.、Mm-hmm. I think the best one would be the compassion, the empathy that they have because they have undergone the challenges, the struggle of acquiring the additional language. And with that, they can bring a lot of strategies. They can understand the struggles of the students, and from there, they know what is best. They know the different strategies that they can use so that the learner can get the language, can learn the language easier. Absolutely, you know, often in my experience, multilingual English teachers tend to be pretty good at teaching English or just any language where they have had to learn、mm-hmm. that language as an additional language. I've been taking Hindi classes for the last two years because my husband is from、mm-hmm. a Hindi-speaking part of India, and I chose a English-speaking teacher, someone、mm-hmm. who had to learn. Hindi and Urdu from、mm. English, and that has been really great, not just for the purpose of the language, but also for、mm-hmm. his role as a cultural informant as well. And I know Shay, you've had experience teaching Spanish、mm-hmm. as someone who learned Spanish. Yeah, Yourself, yeah.、Right? So yeah, I mean, I, I started learning Spanish when I was about thirteen, and then I married a Colombian man, and so my Spanish is 
you know, it's, it's, it's decent, mm-hmm. we could say. And so for a while, I was teaching native English-speaking business people how to do business in Spanish-speaking countries. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, it was really fascinating, <laughs> really hard. But I think there is great use and facility in being able to understand what it is that a specific group of learners needs linguistically because you've lived it yourself to say, like, hey, that's a false cognate. Don't go there. Mm-hmm. There is that sort of ease that just Mm -hmm. we don't Mm -hmm. have as people who learned English as their very first language going into Mm -hmm. you know a different setting and teaching English Mm -hmm. so I also did want to make one more point you know Kareen, you were talking mm-hmm. so much about accentedness right now and it's just so funny mm. to me because we know as English teachers that accent isn't everything that Mm-mm. talking about mm-hmm. accent is very counterproductive to being able to understand and produce language and being experts at a language it's something that is all about perception mm-hmm. right It's all about perception, Mm -hmm. which is why you're bringing it up. And so it's just really unfortunate that that is what people just see and use as kind of a a way to filter their understanding of the quality of that English teacher. So thank you for sharing on that experience. Right. And Anna, if if I may, I would love to share a personal story about these perceptions in different Mm -hmm. contexts. So I always speak from the Hong Kong context because that's where my father is from. And I remember one time I had returned to Hong Kong for summer break just because I didn't want to stay in Seattle over the summer. We went to a book exhibition and my aunt wanted me to approach someone and to use my American English variety to request something rather than her to use Cantonese or her, I guess, her Hong Kong English variety to request something. And I asked my aunt, I'm like, why Why do you want me to do this? And she's like, because they'll treat you better because you sound American and you're a visitor. So they'll get you whatever we want. And that kind of puzzled me because I was rereading this chapter, this book chapter before we all started this. It's by Angel Lin and Suhanti Manta. And it's titled Postcolonial Desires for Colonial English. It just shows that like even though we are living in this super diverse world, there is still this postcolonial desire for colonial English. And I still don't understand why these expanding and outer circle countries are still longing, still desiring mm. for mm-hmm. uh, an inner circle English speaker, yeah. right? The I want okay. I want to sound yeah. British, yeah, I yeah. want to sound American kind of. Mm-hmm. Yes. I yes. want to speak yeah. this variety yes. of English because it's considered superior in society's view. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's just so weird because we should be valuing our multilingual abilities, mm-hmm. especially when we look through the translanguaging lens. But yeah, there's still that desire, that postcolonial desire for a certain type of English. What an interesting example Alex's experience in Hong Kong is. Mm. Even in an outer circle country where English is an official language and stands as its own legitimate, beautiful form of English, Mm. the English of the United States or other inner circle countries is still placed at the top of the hierarchy. Yeah. And I love that Alex mentioned translanguaging here. You know, this theory by Ofelia Garcia, this idea of honoring a person's full linguistic repertoire. 
Rather than a strict monolingual approach, we only use English here, instead valuing multilingualism, using the full strengths of multilingual English learners and teachers. We'll need to do a full episode on translanguaging at some point. Yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. <laughs> and there's a lot more to say about this post-colonial desire for a certain type of English that Alex described. It kind of just bled right into our next question, which is really about how these experiences we've been talking about fit into discussions of colonialism, post-colonialism, neo-colonialism, whatever you want to call it, and world Englishes and how those fit into that model and all of that. So I just want to open the door on that a little more. If Corrine or Alex, you would like to talk a little bit more about how the experiences of multilingual English teachers might fit into those discussions. I'm thinking about the experiences of here in the Philippines. Actually, it's part of our research when we interview different teachers and they all stressed how they are being treated in the workplace. Like, for example, if they have colleagues who are from the Americas or from the Europe, they get more compensation than them, even Mm. though they have the degree, they have the master's degree and even the doctorate degree. But because they are not from that country, they get less compensation. And we're beginning to ask question, why is it like this one? Whereas those teachers, they only have a certificate, but they get more compensation. So we're beginning to ask what is wrong? Um, what are the things that we need to do in order to address these problems? So Alex, you want to add on to that? Yeah, so Karine adds so much value to this conversation because she just mentioned there's still a lot of work to do in the Philippines. So it's like the debate between the global north and the global south, like global north, we would say like the Americas and the European countries. Mm -hmm. But like, how do we value the knowledge Mm -hmm. that's from the global south? Such a good question. This desire for inner circle English teachers really points out how much society has typically valued or not valued Mm -hmm. knowledge from the global south. And Corrine touched upon this idea that teachers who are less educated but come from inner circle countries have this privilege of going to an outer or expanding Mm. circle country and getting paid more. Mm. Uh Uh-huh. That ties back to this idea of the backpacker teacher we discussed in episode 17 on the benefits of formal TESOL training. It's maddening. (laughs) Mm -hmm. The important thing there, I think, is not that inner circle teachers should stay away from teaching abroad, Mm -hmm. but they should always be conscious of whether they're taking a local English teacher's work from them. Mm -hmm. How can they be mindful of that? It's a tough line to walk, but I do think English teachers from inner circle countries can have an empowering role by valuing our multilingual colleagues' work and standing up for their value. So let's hear what Alex and Kareen had to say about how we can move this conversation forward. So what is the message that you want to send to the TESOL community worldwide about what do you want to share about native speakerism? So I think we're doing a good job but we still have a lot of work to do. Um, It's an uphill battle because we're battling a structural injustice here. It's very hard to do something, especially when you have no control over people's thoughts, about people's perception, but it doesn't mean that we don't have to do about anything about it. We have to address this one, and it starts with 
educating people, creating awareness among people, even especially to our colleagues, people who practice the profession. Because it's sad to say that I've been hearing and I've experienced also um, our colleagues from the field who are still stuck in this notion mm-hmm. that other varieties of English doesn't exist. It's just a substandard. Um, at worst, it's wrong. Mm-hmm. So we still have that kind of notion, even within the profession. So we have to address that one. And it starts by being educated, by constantly pursuing education, getting in- ourselves informed. So yes, mm-hmm. but we have a long way to go, but we're getting there. We're getting there. We're doing our best, but we still need to do more. Yeah. Information is power. It's a big <laughs> step, you know. I do appreciate your optimism, mm-hmm. though, Korean. You know, you're a realist, but you're an optimist. And I think we need more people mm-hmm. like you in the world and mm-hmm. in our field. Alex, do you have anything you want to add to that? Yeah, so I, I want to add more to what Karine just says, structural inequalities, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Psychologically, we just need to give more grace and we just need to be kinder to folks who speak varieties of English that they're, you know, we're not mm-hmm. used to. For example, I was watching Harry Potter with my mom once and she told me, she's like, I don't like the British accent. I'm like, what? <laughs> Wait, hold on why she's like i can't understand a lick of what they're saying i only like the american english variety or i only like american english speakers she was telling me and it's just like within the work as kareen just said we have so much more work to do you know with our friends our families our colleagues and i think it ultimately is going to come from a bottom-up approach and educating others like the way that you use language has so much power but within that power what is that power and we need to constantly interrogate that and be critical of it and always question it so you know my message that i want to send to the tesol community worldwide about native speakerism and non-native english speaking teachers is like stop stop trying to label people (laughs) people should be treated as humans Mm. right I find it so problematic and it's like can't we just acknowledge someone's like oh they're an english speaker that's it yeah mm-hmm. why can't we get over that hurdle oh this person speaks the english that i don't understand okay why why don't you understand it mm-hmm. or is it your ignorance of accepting others for who they are just like you know people are english speakers like why why can't we just say that you're right yeah. i want to add on uh, to that actually i remember the student a former student of mine and he said something along the lines of why is it so important that we have to learn this kind of accent or the right pronunciation you know you understand me teacher right why do i have to put myself into so much trouble into producing that kind of sound when you can understand what i'm trying to say isn't the function of language to communicate so if i'm able to communicate with you well and you understand me why are we putting so much stress on this so i was like thinking, oh you have a point so yes so as a mm-hmm. teachers like we have to ask ourselves why are we creating divide on this one when the basic goal here is just to communicate mm-hmm. and connect with others mm-hmm. yeah wow i mean so i'm you know i'm i'm thinking korean about what you're saying this idea of comprehensibility i work with a student who's a lawyer a successful lawyer at a firm in new york city and she happens to be from spain And for a while, she was really insistent and was like, Shay, just like help me reduce my accent, you Mm -hmm. know, help me sound more American. And I'm like, I don't do that. Like, that's not a thing. Like, you'll have to find someone else. But like, don't don't even do that, please. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, we put so much emphasis. So, you know, um, Alex, you mentioned it being sort of from the bottom up that we need to 
inform change. Mm. And I think this starts in the classroom, you know, in the language classroom, instead of putting so mm. much pressure on students to speak a certain way, to get the, the accent just right. Yeah. What if we put the onus on listeners? What if we train students to train their ears to be exactly. better listeners to different mm -hmm. kinds of English? You know, mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. that that is mm -hmm. maybe a way out of this mess. Yeah. You know, we all need to be social and socialize with others. And just what you said, Shay, we need to give the onus, the responsibility, right? For listeners. And we should train them. Maybe we should all train them to be linguists or applied linguists in some kind of way. <laughs> If only. <laughs> Not everyone wants to. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice if everyone could be linguists? <laughs> yeah. Though maybe a little nightmarish too. <laughs> yeah, it could get weird mm -hmm. for sure. But I hope that through this conversation today, we can all reflect on what role we have in upholding this neo-colonial world order as it pertains to native speakerism and beyond. As Alex said, these kinds of changes come from the bottom up. So each of us can truly make a difference in shifting perspectives and attributing value to multilingualism and multilingual teachers. So we hope you'll reflect and share your ideas with us. How have you seen bias against multilingual teachers play out in your teaching context? If English is your first language, How will you use your privilege to stand up for multilingual teachers worldwide? You can share with us in a comment on social media or email us at teacherthinkaloud at gmail.com. We welcome your reflections, questions, and ideas. And while you're still here, we also mm -hmm. welcome your contributions to our fall donation drive. Give a one-time or recurring donation or purchase some podcast swag at teacherthinkaloud.com slash support dash us. <laughs> you know, I can't not say swag like of that. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> And if a monetary contribution doesn't fit your means at the moment, please spread the word to your teacher friends and colleagues. A little support goes a long way. Thanks so much for joining us on the Teacher Think Aloud podcast. And until next time, happy teaching and happy reflecting. Happy reflecting.